Thank you for tuning in to the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You are listening to Pastor Jared Verweil as he continues his sermon series in James. If you would like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, I hope you do turn to James this morning. You also might find we're going to start out in John chapter 6. So um, put a little bookmark in James 3. But we'll be starting in John chapter 6 this morning. Years about uh, 2004, 2005, and it was a, a Christmas that my family will never ever forget, and that Brandy would never forget either. Uh, my sister was hosting Christmas this year, and it was the first time that Brandy and I, as a married couple, were going to go attend our Verweel family Christmas that we had. My sister lived in Austin, Texas with her husband. They had moved there for about five or six years for a temporary job. And so we went down and we did all the things that Verweels normally do at Christmas time. They hosted us really well. At UT, there's a place where uh, my resident UT guy, Scott. So you go down to the downtown uh, Austin area and there's this huge bridge that houses like 30 million bats. You guys been there before? So we did the whole bat thing, and like sundown comes out, and 50 million, 30 million bats, whatever, they fly out into Austin, they eat all the mosquitoes. It's great, so they don't want to kill them. We did all that stuff. We went down to the UT campus, Longhorn, got some apparel that I'll never wear, um, and it was just a great time. So things were finally winding down at Christmas time, which is just when my brother starts winding back up. He loves to bring the party to the family. Everybody else is going to sleep. That's his key, basically, to just be crazy, all right? We start all of these side conversations. The coffee comes out. The dessert comes out. We're up talking. My sisters are talking politics, and that's always fun. My friends are talking religion, and that's always fun. My mom is just halfway asleep, and she's, like, laughing hysterically. It's a great time. Midnight, one o'clock in the morning rolls around. We're all upstairs, and the worst thing happened that could ever happen in the family. We woke up the bear, who's my dad. Now, just want to remind you that this is not his house. This is not his hosting this Christmas party for us, but he took it upon himself to end the conversation right there like only my dad can. And he starts telling my brother-in-law, whose house it is, to go down to his room and to lock the door that it was time to go to bed. He told Brandy and I, a married couple, to go to our room. It was time to go to bed. He told my brother to go downstairs on the couch. He told my sisters to stop talking, go their own way. He needed to sleep because this was his Christmas break. It was such a classic moment because, as Bill Cosby has famously said, parents don't want justice Parents want quiet. We just want it quiet. My dad was probably the best peacekeeper on the planet. It would have been a whole lot better if he was much more of a peacemaker. There's a big difference between being a peacekeeper and a peacemaker. James chapter 3 is going to tell us that perhaps nowhere else do we see this in life than with our words, the words that we say, the words that we receive. 
Are you a peacekeeper or are you a peacemaker? Now, last week, we introduced a, a verse out of Proverbs, and I just want to read it again because it's such a key verse as we finish up James chapter 3 this morning. Proverbs 18.21 says this, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. And this means at least two things. Our words both relay and reveal. On the one hand, our words relay. We relay information to one another. Every time that we speak, we will relay a message that either builds up or tears down, that encourages or that defeats, that brings life or that brings death. Our words relay something. That's why one man put it this way, make sure to taste your words before you spit them out. Or as James puts it, be slow to speak, James 1.19. But our words also reveal something. On the one hand, they relay information. On the other hand, they reveal something. They reveal what's in our hearts, and they reveal what has our hearts, has control of our hearts. The mouth reveals on the outside what the heart is saying on the inside. The mouth reveals that whether we are living for God's kingdom or our own kingdom. It's James that tells us that the mouth controls the body, but remember, it's Jesus that said it's the heart that controls the, the mouth. Our words reveal something every time we speak. And I want to spend a little bit more time fleshing that, that out this week in John chapter 6. Have you found John chapter 6? I want you to look down at verse 9. And I love this passage in John 6 because it's, this is quintessential Jesus, if you'll allow me to say that. Uh, there are things happening here in this chapter. He performs one of his greatest miracles in all the Gospels. But he also do, does one of the things that we least expect him to do. John chapter 6, looked down at verse 9. 5,000 people had gathered around Jesus. They were tired and they were hungry, and Jesus was going to feed them some kind of way. And up walks this boy. He's got five loaves and two fish. And he's going to take this boy's lunch, basically, and multiply it and feed 5,000 people. If there was ever a time for the master teacher to stand up, clear his throat, project his voice, and give one of his best sermons on the kingdom of God, it would be right here in John chapter 6. Look at verse 9. There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many people? Jesus simply says, have the people sit down. There was much grass in that place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus has a chance here to communicate everything that he wants to communicate about who he is, what he has come to do, and to do so in a way that masses of people were all going to hear him at the very same time. This had all the makings of Honest Abe's Gettysburg Address. Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. Patrick Henry's Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death. These 5,000 people are enamored with Jesus. They want Jesus. They want to listen to Jesus. They want to see Jesus do something incredible. And that's exactly what he does. He feeds 5,000. Just like that. Verse 14 shows how they responded. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet, capital P there, who has come into the world. They're looking back at their history. They're saying, look, this is the guy that Moses, our best leader, our best liberator, ever pointed to. 
the prophet that was to come. This is him. Let's give him an audience. And all of this is, is why verse 15 is so shocking in the context. I want you to look down verse 15. Perceiving then, this is Jesus now, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus did what? He withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Jesus turns down the golden moment, passes the mic. The crowd wanted him to inspire. Instead, Jesus goes incognito. He Jason borns his way out of there. They wanted to give him a parade, a party, and they wanted people all around him. They asked Jesus to stay and speak. He said, I'm going to rest and I'm going to retreat instead. None of this is expected. And all of us read the story and we say, Jesus, what are you doing here? Like, why don't you stand up? Why don't you say what you've come to do? Why don't you make everything clear in front of all these people and affirm the miracle that you just performed? Look down at verse 24. When the crowds saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boat and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. They went to look for him. They didn't know where he went. Where is this guy? Let's go to Capernaum. Maybe he's over there on the other side of the sea. Verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus is going to go on now to give one of his best sermons, one of his longest pericopes in all of the Gospels in John chapter 6. And I want you to listen to me carefully. Never once when he speaks, not even the slightest inclination will he ever answer that question that the crowd asked him. He doesn't even touch it for the rest of this chapter. I'm coaching uh, Henry's basketball team this winter. It's been a lot of fun. What I have to do with these boys at the age of 12 and 13 is at the beginning of practice, I just have to run them. I gotta run all the wiggles out of them. We gotta get them focused, we gotta get them aligned, clear their heads of all the sugar that they've been eating all day, all the stuff that they've been learning in class, and help them to be boys on the basketball field. And so here's what we do. We run them like crazy at the beginning of practice. I wear them out. We do this drill called, it's a bad, really bad name for a drill, but they're called suicides. You guys probably know them as yo-yos. You start at the baseline, you run to the free throw line, you touch it, you run back to the baseline, you run to half court, you touch it, you run back to the baseline, run to the other free throw line, you touch that, back to the baseline, then all the way to the other baseline, back to the other baseline. And it is, by the time they get done with it, they are completely winded. Now listen, half of that team, half of those boys will run that drill and do it for us, for the coaches, really well, because they want to finish out that drill, they want to get it over with so that they can go get water, they can rest, and they can work on some other aspects of their game. The other half of those boys run that drill because they love basketball. They want to be better basketball players. They do it because they know it's going to make them better basketball players. On the one hand, some of those kids are running that drill because of what's in it for them. They want to get to the break. On the other hand, other kids are running that drill because they know sacrificing themselves will make them a better player. I want you to look really closely at, at verse 26 here. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because of the sign that you saw, but because you ate food that I gave to you. 
Why did the crowd seek Jesus? Did they seek him because they loved him spiritually or because he fed them physically? Did they seek Jesus for the fellowship with him or because of the food from him? Did they follow Jesus because they loved Jesus or because Jesus met their felt needs in the moment? Our talk is revealing. It reveals what we want the most. It reveals what we love the most. And far too often our talk reveals that we love the things that are physical and we do not love the things that are spiritual. We love the the felt needs that the world can give us, not the real needs that the creator of the world can give us. John chapter six is, is an introductory way of saying, you and I all have a choice. Our entire lives will be determined by which words we reveal. Our entire lives will be determined by which bread you pursue. Physical bread from the world or spiritual bread from heaven, from Christ. This morning, what I want to do is continue our sermon series in James chapter 3, and you can turn to James chapter 3 now if you're still looking in John chapter 6. And we're just going to look at the last five verses in the context here. So far, we've been talking about authentic faith, and we have seen that authentic Christians or authentic faith in Christians is quick to hear James spent all of chapter one and chapter two really fleshing out what does it mean to be an authentic Christian who is quick to hear and has the wisdom that is quick to hear. Now in James chapter three, he talks about the next thing in James 1.19, which is authentic faith is slow to speak. And I just wanna ask two questions as we go through the sermon this morning. Number one, do your words reveal that you are seeking physical bread from this world? Or number two, do they reveal that you are seeking spiritual bread from Christ? and from heaven. James is gonna ask us this one question. Do your words reveal that you are seeking the things of this world below or the things of heaven above? Are you walking in wisdom that comes from God or are you walking in wisdom that comes from the world? How you speak will reflect all of those things and the difference between those two things. Let's look at number one in your outline, James three, look down at verse 13. Words that seek physical bread. Number one, James 3, verse 13. Who is wise in understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in meekness of wisdom. You might just highlight or underline that phrase at the end of verse 13, the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above but it is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. James asks a a crucial question in verse 13. Let's evaluate. Let's use some discernment here. Let's look out at our congregation. Who are the ones that are truly wise and discerning and understanding among us? Their words will reveal it. And he uses the same word twice to get down to the heart of what he's looking for. And and the Greek word there is Sophia, it's wisdom. Who is the one who is wise, who has wisdom among us? It beckons us back to the Hebrew word for that same English word wisdom, which is chokmah. I wanna take just a little bit of time and and talk about wisdom, especially as it's reflected in our words. Biblical wisdom is not an easy term to define, so let's start out with what 
biblical wisdom is not. Number one, biblical wisdom is not intelligence, pure and simple. Biblical wisdom is not intelligence, pure and simple. Wisdom might include intelligence, but biblical wisdom is not related to IQ factors or measurements. Proverbs describes the wisdom of ants and rock badgers and lizards. It's not their IQ that matters, it's their practical application of what they know that matters that gives us an example of wisdom in life. Why? Because wisdom is not solely cognitive as much as it's effective. Use Maslow's terms here. Biblically speaking, wisdom is not just what we know, it's what we put into practice. It's how we live our lives. At its most basic level, biblical wisdom is skill in living. Now, James says, says something that's really interesting here, and, and I ask you to highlight it at the end of verse 13. He says, let him show his good works in the meekness of his wisdom. And that means at least this, wisdom, biblical wisdom, is not harsh with other people. It's not haughty, it's not conceited, it's not arrogant in any way. Wisdom has an undeniable demeanor to him. It is not abrasive. Wisdom is not overtly mean in any sense of the word. It is meek and it is kind and it is perfectly embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. You wanna know what meekness is? Here's a good definition. Meekness is an attitude or a quality of the heart whereby a person approaches God humbly faces life with teachability, endures suffering patiently, and follows Christ submissively. When meekness works its way out in life, here's what that looks like. It's a person who approaches God humbly, who faces life with teachability. We don't have all the answers to all that life is going to throw at us, but we do have the ability to learn through it and grow biblically and scripturally through it. Meekness and wisdom endures suffering patiently and follows Christ submissively. It's next to impossible to have biblical wisdom. The type of wisdom that James is describing for us right here in chapter three, if that person has the following two characteristics. Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. And if you saw those two words in the very next verse of James, you know that they are key words. They are loaded words in the New Testament. So let's talk about both of them. First, let's talk about bitter jealousy. Bitter jealousy in the Bible means to seek the best for yourself regardless of anybody else around you. A jealous person is only and always consumed about themselves and their self-interests more than they are worried or consumed or thinking about anybody else in the context. Jealousy wishes for another person to have less doesn't matter what it is. Could be money, position, significance, title. They just want less than what they have. J.I. Packer famously said, jealousy is one of the most cancerous, soul-destroying vices that there is. But look at your text here. This is not just jealousy that James is talking about. He puts an adjective before that. He, he calls it bitter jealousy. And the Greek culture and, and the Greco-Roman world understood an idea of bitterness that was pretty distinct at that time. All the references that we have to this Greek word bitter have grown and morphed into the definition that we use it as in our English language today. At first, bitterness in the Greco-Roman world meant progress or a process. 
At that time, the culture understood that nobody just becomes bitter, but they grow in bitterness. It's a process that evolves in the heart and the mind of a person. Bitter first meant to be pointed, and then it meant to be penetrating, even down to the soul and to the heart of a person. Eventually, bitterness was a word that referred to pain, ultimately leading to metaphorical use of the term bitter, a sour taste in our mouth leaves an undeniable and a lasting impression, something that we cannot avoid in our relationships and our experiences through life. The Greco-Roman culture understood that people aren't just jealous. They grow into it. They develop it. When does jealousy become bitter? James tells us. Look down in your text. If you have bitter jealousy, verse 14, and selfish ambition in your hearts. Jealousy becomes bitter when it is harbored in our hearts. Jen Wilkin has a great study on James chapter 3. What do ships do when they pull into the harbor? They drop anchor. A person who has bitter jealousy is dropping anchor on that jealousy and holding on to it, not letting go of it. They are content with that jealousy in their heart. You know why words can be so hurtful and painful to other people? You know why they reveal so much and relay so much information about us? Instead of people dealing with bitter jealousy, they choose to harbor it. That's why. And they think it's okay to harbor that jealousy. Selfish ambition is just as bad, if not worse, in this context. Epithumia, uh, you've heard me talk about this word before. It means a desire, but a an added prefix, a super desire to have a selfish ambition is to desire something or someone more than you desire anything else. That all of life shuts down if you don't have that thing, that person, that amount of money, that possession, whatever it is. That's the selfish ambition that James is talking about. When you study these two words as they are collocated next to each other, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, in the Greek language, they only occur a handful of times. Do you know what the context always is when they're put together? It's related to the government. It's related to politics. The most time you see those two words put together in the Greek language, it is talking about a political situation where people are expressing bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. Polarizing and polarizing over and over again. Finally, look down at verse 15. You thought it couldn't get any worse, right? This is not wisdom that comes down from above. It is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. These three things have been called the unholy triad of false wisdom, earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. In the New Testament, if something is described as earthly, it means that it is natural, not supernatural. If it is unspiritual, it is inherently secular or related to man rather than being related to anything that has to do with God. Demonic, the third of this triad, has to do with the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Almost verbatim, when we see these three things in the New Testament, you read it like this, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil want to convince us of many things. They want to convince us of many things about our words. They want to convince us of many things about the type of bread that we seek either from the world or from the word of God. The word, the flesh, and the devil want to convince us that physical things are permanent, not temporary. 
Number two, that physical bread is the only bread that is out there or available. And number three, that success is found in how much bread you possess in life. You want to pursue the wisdom from below? These are the marks of it. These are the results of it as well. Thankfully, James doesn't stop there. James gives us an option. He tells us there's another type of bread that we can pursue, a spiritual bread from above, words that uh, we seek a spiritual bread from or a Christ from that Jesus has become the bread of life even in this context with our words as we seek wisdom. Look at verse 16 and let me read through the end of the chapter here. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, again, those words are repeated for emphasis, there will be disorder of every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, and good fruits, impartial and sincere, verse 18. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. James is asking us a question here. Are you a person who struggles with words? You've got a planting issue, is what James says. You're planting the wrong seeds and expecting a different kind of crop. What we all need to do is take a step back and plant the right seeds in the soil so we can get a fruit of righteousness, a harvest of righteousness instead. I want you to imagine, if you're anything like me, it's a... Our kids go to bed about 9.30 at night or something like that. Don't judge us, all right? It's just what we do. Um, I want you to imagine it's like 11 o'clock at night. Brandy and I are sitting on the couch, and we just finished talking to each other about the day and catching up after a long day, and the kids have been in bed for an hour and a half, and all we hear from the dark recesses of the hallway that's just adjacent to our family room is, is wrestling and, and conversations and ongoing activity from the bedroom an hour and a half after we put them to bed. Mind you, we have one child that lives upstairs. We have two that live downstairs. Somehow the one from the up came down and started wrestling and doing all these things in there. And, and I get up, of course, off the couch, and it's my duty to go straighten things out, quiet them down, and get them to bed. And I'm thinking many things as I walk down that hallway at my house as I'm about to approach these kids, I'm thinking, thank you, Lord Jesus, for this wonderful opportunity <laughs> to speak truth into the life of my children. I'm so grateful I can disciple them in this way and teach them how to be wise and beyond their years and discernment, understanding. Thank you, Jesus. No, I'm thinking I'm about to kill some kids in my house. And if they live through this thing, they're going to have to deal with their mom, and they don't want to do that, right? Why do, we, why do we struggle so much to vocalize the things that we know we should be vocalizing in our hearts, in the heat of a moment, in a moment of anxiousness or disappointment? How can our speech indicate wisdom from above instead of wisdom from below? How can our words show that we are seeking the bread that is spiritual, not just the bread that is physical to meet our felt needs? I want to give you just a, a few points as we, we close here. 
Number one, in order to seek the spiritual bread from heaven instead of physical bread from below, James calls us to set our minds on words that are pure. To set our minds on words that are pure. Purity in James chapter 3 is a direct contrast to selfish ambition earlier on in the context. Purity has to do with our motives, our desires, our will, the things that grab our hearts, that encourage us, give us a reason to keep going. Our motives become pure when they are Christ-centered instead of when they are man-centered. Jesus calls Christians to be pure in heart. What that means is to be totally living in God's ways instead of our own ways to be totally engulfed in pursuing God's will instead of our own will, to know his word and to put it into practice. The first thing that we must do if we are gonna be described with wisdom from above in our speech is to set our minds on words that are pure. The second thing we do is we speak words that are gentle. Number two, we speak words that are gentle. One teacher put it this way, this means that those with wisdom from above are not harsh when they come across. Gentle wisdom does not operate like an alpha male. Alpha males, when their territory or control is being threatened, they get angry and they bark louder and they show more teeth. Their goal is for forced submission, no matter what it takes, and they will use fear and force to do that. If they can get you to tuck tail and run away, an alpha male wins. They keep control. Godly words are gentle. They are not forceful. Number three, godly words from above remain in a posture that is open to reason, not closed to your own objectives. Godly words from above remain in a posture that is open to reason, not closed to your own and often sinful objectives. And that means at least two things. Wisdom from above is open to discussion as much as it is related to the scriptures and what God teaches. Wise-worded people don't develop a complex if another person challenges them on something, asks them a question about something, or even challenges their ideas. Wisdom from above has comfort in admitting that sometimes it doesn't know, and so it pursues those answers through God's word and through godly wisdom and counsel from other people. Godly wisdom from above remains in a posture that is open to reason. Number four, we seek wisdom that is full of mercy, goodness, and sincerity. James calls us to seek wisdom that is full of mercy, goodness, and sincerity. Godly wisdom and wise words are not used for show. Wise words are not rolled out on a red carpet. They don't require a fancy podium to be put up for somebody to stand behind them and to wield those words. Words waiting to be tested for quality. That's not godly wisdom. Godly wisdom is full of mercy, extending grace beyond measure. It is always for the good, never for evil, in the heart or in the life of anybody that you have in your life. And it is sincere, meaning it is not hypocritical. We do not say one thing and do another with our words. Other words we, otherwise, we haven't said anything at all. Godly wisdom from above makes peace. It doesn't just keep peace. Godly wisdom from above makes peace. It doesn't just keep peace. And let me read verse 18 one more time. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace 
by those who make peace. Uh, Jen Wilkins' study on, on James chapter 3, again, uh, I just want to reference it. It is such a great study. I think our ladies went through it. Judy, how long ago was that? A couple semesters? Y'all did the James study? Really good study. I want to recommend it to you. She compares peacekeeping and peacemaking. And I want to give her comparisons that she mentioned. Here's what she said. Peacekeeping is easy. When we want to keep the peace, we just ignore the problem and we hope it goes away. Peacemaking is harder. It demands not that we avoid, but that we address conflicts and we deal with them. Peacekeeping is short-term and it lives for the moment. Peacemaking is long-term and it lives for relationships. Peacekeeping is passive. It sits in hopes that the conflict is erased. Peacemaking is active. It hopes that the conflict is redeemed. Peacekeeping is conflict avoidance. Peacemaking is conflict resolution. Peacekeeping is the path of least resistance. Peacemaking is the hard path. It's the path of discipleship. Peacekeeping is self-focused. Peacemaking is God-centered. Peacekeeping doesn't really solve anything. Peacemaking solves problems. Peacekeeping involves smooth talking. Peacemaking involves patient listening. Peacekeeping thinks that they're helping when actually that they're, they're hurting. Peacemaking seems to hurt, but actually it helps. Peacekeepers want to control, and they want the conversation to end. Peacemaking wants the conversation to begin. Peacekeepers intimidate, peacemakers mediate. Peacekeepers want to hide things and sweep them under the rug. Peacemakers want to lift up the rug and clean out what's been underneath there for far too long. James chapter three is, to stand up here as a pastor and give these sermons on words is next to impossible. Here I am using all these words. Proverbs says the more you speak, the more you're gonna sin. It's just going to happen. Nothing could be more important for our lives, our relationships, in dealing with conflicts than using our words as peacemakers, not simply peacekeepers. I like to believe, and, and I think that James addresses this in chapter three of his letter because he was dealing with churches with a lot of conflicts in them. They had a lot of conflicts because they probably had a lot of people. We're sinners. We got underlying sin in all of our hearts that affects the way we speak to one another. When that happens, conflicts emerge. James is asking all of us to think about what we're gonna say before we say it. He's asking all of us to make a decision right now to be peacemakers, not just peacekeepers. He's asking all of us to develop a wisdom that is beyond our years, not to avoid conflicts, to address them, reconcile them, and redeem them for the glory of God. The reason why he's asking us to do that is because Jesus didn't avoid the conflict. Jesus didn't look out at the conflict of sin and avoid it, pretend it wasn't there, run away from it, or escape it. He dealt with it. And he did so by going to a cross that would ultimately take his life. Jesus didn't care how he came out of the conflict. He won the conflict 
as he was buried and rose again three days later, showing his victory over sin and death. But in the midst of it, he was taking a lot of stuff that he didn't have to take in order to be a peacemaker instead of just a peacekeeper. Because Jesus addressed the biggest, hardest, most difficult, eternal conflict that all of us have, which is sin between an all-holy God, we as Christians should now take that redemption, that forgiveness of sins, and apply it to our relationships and deal with much smaller conflicts for the glory and for the redemption of God. Does that make sense to you? James chapter three is hard. We're gonna move on to the next one, which is guys, uh, I don't know why I'm pinpointing just guys, slow to anger. Uh, Come back next week if you guys wanna deal with your anger from James chapter four. And the conflicts and the passions that are at war within ourselves. It's not gonna get easier as we go, but I promise this sermon series will finish up sometime soon. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for just this admonition to, uh, to speak carefully. Thank you that you have given us the ability to pursue wisdom, to seek wisdom from above. And I pray that our, marks, our, our lives would be marked with these eight things that James mentions here. That our words would be marked by purity, gentleness, peace, that we would be full of mercy, we would have good fruits, we'd be impartial, sincere. Lord, help us to develop this wisdom from above by the things that we say with other people. Let us do that to the glory of God. And it's in the name of his son, Jesus, that we pray this morning. Amen.